Today, we're doing a shear on anger, an incredibly important uh, topic, and uh, one in which I feel you know, very strongly about, something that uh, many people, myself included, sometimes struggle with, uh, but really a very, very important topic, as we shall see, uh, and not just an important topic in general, but uh, specifically, this is a uh, companion, if you will, to last week's shear, uh, where we spoke uh, also about another very important topic of humility. Uh, they share a common thread in that uh, both of them have to do with you know, self-improvement and working on oneself from a Torah perspective. Uh, and secondly, as we shall see, I think uh, substantively there actually are direct connections between uh, anger and humility. So let's begin, if you can turn your attention to the screen, uh, to the source sheet, uh, with the first source. And I'd like to just demonstrate right at the outset uh, the severity with which Chazal viewed the Mida of a person who's an angry person, someone who loses their temper, his or her temper. As we shall see, uh, to some extent that might even apply even for an individual single situation of losing one's temper. But certainly this would apply to someone who regularly uh, is an angry person and regularly loses their temper. So the Mishnah Perkeovos in Perke, in the first source on your sheet, tells us that one of the fundamental character traits of a person, certain types of people, are those who are noach lichos v'kashel liratzos. Those who are easy and quick to anger, and those who have a very hard time making up with people, apologizing, accepting other people's apologies, uh, etc. And those type of people, now if you would just ask me, I would say, you know, that's a difficult person, maybe not a pleasant person. Nevertheless, that's not what the Mishnah says. The Mishnah is actually much further. The Mishnah says that such a person is a Russia, which is obviously quite the uh, strong uh, statement to make. And that's, in fact, a very, very uh, appropriate way to begin. You know, an earlier source you cannot find in the Mishnah itself, in uh, Perkeavos, referring to a person who has an anger management problem as, unfortunately, nothing short of a Russia. The Gemara Masech the Shabbos, perhaps, if you could even go further than the Mishnah, the Gemara does, because the Gemara says in source number two that a person who gets very angry to the extent, at least in the case of the Gemara, in which the person tears their clothing out of anger or throws the proverbial vase against the wall, throws the plate, is destructive in their anger, says the Gemara, to some extent, it's considered worshipping of Odezara. If you are somebody who has that degree of anger management problems, and to cap it all off, uh, perhaps no better source to look at is the Rambam. The Rambam is source number three uh, in Hilchos Deos. This is the companion Rambam to the one that we saw last week. And this is one which will not only uh, echo and articulate the severity with which we've already seen, but also will substantively be very connected and overlap with the shear last week. Because here, the Rambam says in source number three, You remember that last week, we discussed the fact that even though the Rambam is very famous for his doctrine of the golden mean, the shvil hazahav, a person should always be balanced, not to go to extremes. Last week, we saw the Rambam said there are two exceptions to that. One of the exceptions was humility and arrogance. That was last week's topic. The Rambam said there is no place for arrogance even a little bit. Of course, a big part of last week's shir was to define what is arrogance. Uh, not necessarily the same thing at all as healthy self-confidence and believing in yourself, but I don't want to repeat last week's shir. But whatever is considered inappropriate arrogance, says the uh, Rambam, one has cannot have any of it. Even a small amount is a problem. One should go to the other extreme. That was one example. And now comes the second example. Says the Rambam at the end of the first line, V'chein ka'as. Anger is the second example of Amida that a person should not even have a little bit. You should not be a centrist. You should not be balanced when it comes to your anger. Rather, you should try to avoid it completely. Says the Rambam in continuation, Ka'as is a Amida rahi adam od. Very, very, very bad character trait. You should go to the opposite, opposite extreme. And then after making that point, which again we appreciate in light of the Rambam's uh, general doctrine and what he's already told us about humility, then the Rambam just codifies and echoes what the uh, Gemara itself had just said, And I don't want to dwell on the point, but if you're sensitive to the nuances in language, the Rambam seems to be in a slight way, even stronger than the Gemara. Uh, there's no hesitation at all. There seems to be an almost identical uh, equation 
uh, that a person who has an anger management problem, again, it's hard to know from the Rambam if he means if you even do it once, or does he mean a more perpetual problem, but uh, the Rambam says if you have that anger issue, it says if you worshipped idols. Now this is, of course, quite, on the one hand, it just reiterates what we've already seen, which is the severity with which Chazal and Rishonim view the Midah of anger. On the other hand, we should pause for a moment to try to ask ourselves the question why this should be. Why would one think that uh, it's not just a bad thing, that we'll have to get to, why is it so bad? But even before that, why would it be Avodah Zarah? I mean, you know, not everything has, you know, just because you have a hammer, not everything is a nail. In other words, that we should be able, it doesn't seem like, if you just want to say it's bad, say it's bad. Why Dafka make it connected to Avodah Zarah? What's the connection uh, there? So, in fact, I think, um, I try, I'm trying to remember if I've ever mentioned this previously or in last week's show, I don't remember, but um, I years ago, I don't know if this is published, it may be, but years ago I believe I heard in person from Rabbi Norman Lamb, a very beautiful interpretation, not only about anger, but also as it connected to the previous Mida and last week's topic of humility. And that is to say, said uh, Rabbi Lamb, that the connection between humility and anger is that most, perhaps there are exceptions to the rule, but most of the time that we get angry, uh, a root cause, you know, one step before our anger and our explosion was a feeling of arrogance. Or think of almost anything that somebody did, either a stranger or for that matter a loved one, that provoked you. So a lot of it comes from, you know, how dare they? You know, do they know who I am? Do they know what I do for them? You know, how could my child not listen to me? I'm the mom, I'm the dad, right? There's a certain... Uh, position of status that underlies the frustration or the anger. You know, I do so much for my spouse. Why doesn't he or she appreciate it? Right? There's a certain, it's a focus on me, 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 which filters through and that raises the temperature and our frustration and our, frankly, anger at whatever it is that somebody is doing or not doing that is bothering us. Or for that matter, the stranger, you know, who cuts us off or who cuts a line or whatever. You know, what about, you know, we, again, objectively, we, maybe we have a right to condemn such behavior. But the anger, anger is not just criticism. Anger is a personal feeling of resentment. How could you do this to me? Don't you know that my time is important? Whatever the, you can think of almost any example you want. So that's the connection between anger uh, and humility. And the reason Rabbi Lamb suggested that they are in both cases, combined to create this problem, which is even viewed as a form of a vodazara. Again, obviously it's not meant literally. No one thinks, God forbid, not the Rambam or the Gemara, that if two witnesses saw a person getting angry, you'd warn them in the time of the base of Migdash, if they still got angry, you'd take them to the base din and they would get killed. Right? No one means that literally. We don't punish a person who gets angry the way a person uh, who really did worship an idol, who was a pagan. Nevertheless, the incredibly extreme language of Chazal echoed, and perhaps even uh, strengthened by the Rambam is based on the fact, says Rabbi Lam, that what it means to be a religious Jew means to have God in the center of your life. Everyone has many different aspects of their life, has many things that are going on uh, in their life. Uh, we have our personal life, our professional life, our, profess- our personal life can be divided into our marriage and our children and our grandchildren, etc., etc., and our professional life and our social life and our hobbies and our habits and all sorts of different things, including our religious life, our mitzvot, our relationship with Hashem, our relationship with our shul, with all sorts of things. Says Rabbi Lam, the key to making all that legitimate, a person doesn't have to sit and say tehillim all day. But what it means to be a religious Jew means to have Hashem in the center and have this kind of circle of every part of our life around the circle, around the, you know, the, the circumference, but the focus is Hashem in the middle. That's what it means to be a believing Jew. That everything I do somehow fits around that circle and focuses on the center. Says Rabbi Lam, if you are arrogant and therefore often get angry, unfortunately what that means is you've, instead of putting Hashem at the center, you've put yourself at the center. And as a result, whether it's the anger, which is really the result of the arrogance, or the arrogance itself, it is a form of a vodazara because you've displaced God as the most important thing in the world, and even said, inserted yourself. Okay, so Adkan, the first three sources, what we have tried to illustrate, uh, and there are other sources we could have uh, brought as well, that in fact, from the Torah perspective, anger is a very, very extreme and very, very negative uh, behavior. However, I'd like to share with you a few very interesting sources, which in some sense go even further, or perhaps not necessarily further, but shed a completely different uh, dimension uh, of the Torah's perspective, of Chazal's perspective on anger, and that is not just how bad it is from a moral perspective, from a religious perspective, but in fact how destructive and damaging it is to the person who lost his or her temper. 
Take a look at source number four. This is the Gemara in Masech Psachim. Here the Gemara says uh, in source number four here, let me just make it a little bigger so you can see, I hope. Uh, one second. Okay, here's source number four. The Gemara says, Koha Adam Koes, Im Chachamhu, Chachmoso, Mistalekes Mimenu, Im Navihu, Nivuaso, Mistalekes Mimenu. Amazing. A person is a huge Tamachacham, is a scholar, and there's lots of Torah. But if they lose their temper, if they have an anger management problem, they will lose their wisdom. If a person's a Navi, right? A Chacham could be a man or a woman, and a Navi, we certainly know, could be a man or a woman. If you're a Navi, but you have an anger management problem, says the Gemara, you will lose your prophecy. Incredible. In both cases, whether it's the Chacham or the Navi, we're talking about somebody, a man or a woman, who's risen to incredible heights of spiritual piety, of wisdom. You don't become a Chacham just because you happen to have a smart IQ. That means someone who's diligently for years toiled over Svarim, amassing great knowledge, wisdom, a person who's spiritually refined to the point that Hashem endowed him or her with prophecy. And yet, despite all those accomplishments and being worthy in so many other ways, evidently from the Gemara, just from the fact that a person can't control his or her anger, her temper, you can lose that status, that incredible accomplishment of being a Navi or being a Chacham. The Gemara goes on, and for now we're going to skip it, but the Gemara goes on to give proof text. How do we know this? So one which is more familiar to us is Moshe. Despite how smart Moshe was, how much Torah he knew, to put it mildly, he gets angry in the Chumash, and he forgets certain halachos, knows the answer to certain questions. The Gemara gives another proof example about Nevuah from the Navi Elisha. And then if you take a look at the second line at the end of source number four, something I think is even more astounding. Says the Gemara, Kol Shekoes, another example, a third in this uh, triumvirate of uh, shame <laughs> and disaster. This is, a, this is a threesome you would not want to be part of. What's the third example? Not only a Chacham, but a Navi, but also, Afilu Postkinel of Gedulam and Hashamayim, Moridinoso. Says the Gemara, incredibly, even if Hashem had already determined that you were eligible for, you were uh, deserving of an incredible reward, some incredible status, some incredible good thing, post can love Gedulam and Hashemayim, it already had been decided. If you then lose your temper, Hashem will take that away from you. You can lose something that had already been designated and promised for you. This is astounding. And who does the Gemara give as a proof for that? Minawan me'aliyav. Now if this was a men's shear, I don't think I would ask who knows who Aliyev was, because obviously none of them would. Because uh, you have to know Navi uh, to know uh, that. But I imagine not a small number of uh, the participants in today's shear uh, might actually know who Aliyev is. Aliyev, of course, was one of David Amalek's brothers. And says the Gemara, he was actually the one who was supposed to be Melech Yisrael. Really, we never should have heard of David, and it should have been Aliyah, Aliyah, Melech Yisrael, Chai, Chai, right? You know the song? Not David, Melech Yisrael, it should be Aliyah. How come so few people have heard of Aliyah? Because he wasn't the king, he didn't get it. Says the Gemara, he was the guy from central casting. You know, he was probably, you know, 6'2", he was tall, he was handsome, he was wise and bright and articulate and had that leadership quality. If you were des- who should have been the king? The most worthy, deserving person was Aliyah. And why did he lose it, says the Gemara? Because he got angry. And the Gemara describes, we got angry, yeah, without getting to the details, but it has to do with the story of David in Goliath. And he wanted his younger brother, the little meek, younger brother David, stay out of it. Be safe. This is dangerous. David didn't listen. And he got angry at his brother. And he's coming from a good place. But he got angry. Says the Gemara, if you get angry, you can't be a leader. And therefore, even though Aliyah had been promised, and had been decided, Hashem had decided in Shamayim, Aliyah is the next king. He took it away from him because he got angry. So here you see, unbelievably, in source number four, the incredibly destructive power of anger. Despite all your successes, all that you've worked for all of your life to achieve a certain level of success, a certain stature, you can lose it all if you're simply vulnerable to losing your temper. Anger management problems can destroy and take away things which you've worked a lifetime to achieve. Similarly, and perhaps, perhaps one could say even more dramatically, is source number five. This is a medrash. And the medrash says something astounding. Says the medrash, 
really, 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 there were supposed to be Arba Avos to parallel the Arba Imahos. And that wouldn't have worked for the song at the Seder, but uh, evidently there really were supposed to be not three and then four, but in fact four and four. Who was supposed to be the fourth one of the Avos? Says the Medrash in source number five, it was supposed to be Eov. To the extent, says the Medrash at the end of the source, where it's underlined, really, 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 part of our davening every day should have been to say, Elke Avraham, Elke Yitzchak, Elke Yaakov, Elke Eov. Now think about that. How incredible would that be? If I were to offer you that you could be the fourth person in that list, that every day, Jews, every day around the world, for, forever, will daven in your name, okay, out of Israel, Yaakov, and insert here, you could be the fourth. I think that's probably more valuable even than being a random chacham, a random navi, or even being the random king. I mean, what an incredible thing that Eov evidently was deserving of. I mean, I sometimes uh, you know, ask or think rhetorically, if you were to go to all of the wealthiest Jews in the world, the wealthiest one from Israel, the wealthiest one from Mexico, the wealthiest one from the various big cities in, in America, and from Canada, and from Europe, and you were to do a, uh, you know, uh, we would do, uh, you know, we would ask them, we would have a bidding for tzedakah, for a good cause, you know, how much will you bid at the auction so that the fourth name should be you? Okay, Avram, okay, Yitzchak, okay, Yaakov, and put your name here. How much do you think we could get for that? How much could we raise for tzedakah? I can't even imagine, right? Who wouldn't want such a covenant? What an incredible covenant. And of course it didn't happen. And why didn't it happen, says the Medrash? Why did Eov lose what should have been the most incredible covenant in the world? Says the Medrash, because he got angry. Karatagar. Who did he get angry with? Of course he got angry with Hashem. At some point in the story, he can't take it anymore, all of his suffering, and he loses his temper, and he complains about and to Hashem. Now, now is obviously not the time to discuss the fact, other than to acknowledge, but not to really discuss uh, it. Um, really, is that, such a, is that so unforgiving? For, forgivable, I should say? Eov, given all that he has suffered, can we really hold it against him that he lost his temper a little bit? I think that's a very fair question. This is a very, very difficult medrash. But to be honest, I don't think that's a better question than all the other questions you could ask on Nebuch, why was Eov suffering? I mean, this is the question of all of Sefer Eov. So when you read the Sefer Eov, you see all the horrible uh, suffering. You know, it's become, it's so obvious and so profound, you know, even in, in English. Jo- everyone knows what Job means, right? To suffer like Job is indescribable. So, from the Medrash, we can add yet another insult to injury. Another way Eov suffered, which he may or may not even have realized, is that he could have been, you know, in the pantheon, on the Mount Rushmore, so to speak, of the Avos, and yet he lost it because he got angry. Is that fair? It would seem to me, probably not. But then again, nothing that happened to him seems to be so fair. That's really the, the vexing questions of the, of the Sefer. So I don't have an answer to that, and I'm not even going to try to answer it. But for our purposes, it's still clear, yet yet another source underlying and reiterating the incredibly destructive power of anger. You can lose your chachma, you can lose your wisdom, you could lose your melucha, you can lose your nevuah, and you could even lose being one of the others. Incredible. That's how destructive uh, anger is. But now that we've clearly, I think, and unequivocally demonstrated the point, uh, it's reasonable to ask, but why should it be? Why is it that anger is considered not only such a moral or religiously problematic uh, Mida, which we tried to explain a little bit before from Rabbi Lamb, but why is it so destructive? Listen, nobody's perfect. Everyone has different Midos that they're better or worse than, worse at. Why is it that specifically anger is the one which, again, evidently, even if you have Alamilis, but this one, you're just missing this one thing, even though you're very, very qualified and very eminently impressive in so many other ways, but if you just have this issue in and of itself, you could lose who knows what. what. Why is that true? And I'd like to suggest, uh, perhaps, uh, that the source and the solution and the secret uh, to this may come from an unexpected uh, place. And this is 
As my wife will tell you, one of my uh, favorite and most oft-quoted sources, you don't even have to ask my wife, you could ask any of my kids, and they know this Tvar Torah. This is source number six from the Sefer Birkas Peretz, which is the Stipler Gon. Um, I guess in today's generation, you have to say Reb Chaim Kanievsky's father. <laughs> and I'm sure, like any good father, I'm sure he'd be proud to be known that way. Uh, but he was obviously a huge guttle in his own right. Uh, he does not need to stand uh, you know, on the coattails of his son. Uh, and he's usually more well-known for his Gemara and his halachic analysis. But he actually has a thin safer here on the Chumash called Berkas Peretz. And in the beginning of Sefer Shmos, when uh, the action is getting started with the plagues, he has a very profound insight. He points out that in the story of the frogs, the second of the plagues, Makas Tzfardea, so on the one hand, the Torah tells us that um, Moshe, if you look carefully at the Loshon, uh, Moshe says, uh, Hashem, excuse me, Hashem tells Moshe to hit the frog in the singular, and then, in fact, when the Torah then describes how the frogs were uh, completely blanketing and covering uh, all of Mitzrayim, the Torah itself switches from the language of a tzvardea in singular to a tzvardeim in plural. And it's, when you read the psukim, if you read them carefully, it's very, very noticeably and obviously incongruous. And therefore, Rashi quotes, again, I didn't give you this on the sheet, but uh, Rashi quotes, this is the background for what we'll see in a second, Rashi quotes the famous Medrash that uh, many of us or our children or grandchildren learn in Gan, or kindergarten, that in fact only one of the, uh, there was only one big frog that came out of the river, and in fact what happened is the Jews, very reasonably, I can't blame them, it was very reasonable, they thought, well, oh, we have this big scary frog coming out of the river, what will we do? We'll hit it, we'll kill it, we'll attack it, we'll destroy it. I mean, not, not the Jews, the Egyptians, excuse me. But what happens, says the Medrash? So the way, the, the way Rashi quotes the Medrash, each time they hit the frog, out of its mouth spewed other frogs. And they kept on hitting it, and then eventually there was enough frogs to blanket all of Egypt. The way my kindergarten teacher told me, each time they hit the frog, it split into two. And then another time it just blew into two, into two, into two. I don't know if I ever found a source for the splitting the two thing. If anyone can find that inside, I'd love to see it. But the way Rashi quotes the Medrash is, it's not that they split into two, but this super frog who came out of the uh, river kept on spitting out reams and reams of more frogs. Okay, that's the Medrash. I have no doubt either you, your children, or your grandchildren, or all three have learned this at some point, are all familiar with this. With that in mind, which we all take for granted because it's such a great story and there's a great song that we sing together at the Seder and the frogs are everyone's favorite makkah. Um, I mean, not the Egyptians, but for us, it was our favorite mock. Everyone likes to talk about that. Um, the stipler asks a very obvious question. Powerful once you see him ask it. One second, he says, Once the Egyptians saw that the plan wasn't working, it was a reasonable plan. You can't fault them for the plan. You try it once, twice, three times, but once they see that it's not working, and in fact, on the contrary, it's backfiring, it's having the opposite impact, wouldn't you have expected some reasonable, some smart Egyptian to say, time out, Pesach man, T.O., hold a minute, let's think about this. Right now we have a small problem. Each time we hit the frog, we're making the problem bigger and bigger. Let's just stop. There'll be X number of frogs. It'll be a little convenient, a little loud, a little smelly, but it's not a big deal. It won't cripple the entire country. How brilliant do you have to be? How great of a uh, scholar, how great of a leader, how great of a diplomat, a strategist do you have to be to figure this out? It's posh, it's obvious, says the stipler. And yet, from the very fact that the Torah testifies that there were so many frogs that it covered and blanketed Egypt, from the fact that this brought Paro to his knees and he had to beg Moshe to, to remove the frogs, it's obvious, implicitly, says the stipler, that it must be that no one had that common sense. And that they kept on hitting and hitting and hitting until the problem got overwhelming. But why? They could have stopped it without the need for begging Moshe. They could have nipped the problem in a bud just by stopping hitting the frog. Says the stipler, second line where it's underlined. I'll tell you the answer. Avama midas hakas omeres. Adraba. Bekeim and shemosif alahatiz. Kol shekein. Bekol shekein. Tzrichim hosif litnakeim. Ula kaso. Kekol shefsar says the stipler, a simple but unbelievably compelling and profound insight. You know what the source of the problem was? The Egyptians got angry. Because what is the, the root of so much of our anger? 
especially interpersonally, when we have an expectation that someone or something will happen, we have an expected result, something that we're expecting to happen, and if we, it doesn't happen, we get frustrated. When we get frustrated, we then often will go back to the well another time. We'll try to do the same thing another time and another time. And each time we do it, it will make our problem even harder and harder and harder. And therefore, this is an incredibly, incredibly instructive thing. It says the stipler, you know what happened? Each time the Egyptians hit the frog, they expected it to die. They expected the problem to be solved. But instead what happened? The problem got worse, which made them what? Angrier. We hit you. We hit the frog. You should be dying. Instead you're multiplying. So what happens? You get angry. So what do you tell yourself? I'm going to hit it again. And I'm going to hit it harder. Whoa. In fact, each time they got angry, it made the problem worse. So what did they do? They did it again. It didn't happen when they wanted. They got frustrated. They got angry. They hit. It became a vicious cycle. And in essence, says the stipler, they lost control. And when they lost control, they ended up losing their minds, losing their discipline, losing control, and they made the problem much worse for themselves. If you take a look at the continuation, he says where it's underlined, this is not only true for the Egyptians. We think, oh, these silly Egyptians, they kept on hitting the frog. Says the stipler, none of us are that much wiser. And it goes on and on and on, the vicious cycle. Says the stipler, we're usually, unfortunately, when we lose our temper, we are often, if not usually, victims of the same silliness and the lack of real rational thought and self-control as the Egyptians. He gives the example, but you could think of any other example too. His particular example is of someone who insults you or does something wrong to you. You could just let it go. But instead what happens? A person returns in kind, which gets that person angry who they, he or she returns in kind, which gets you even angrier, so you return in kind, which gets them even angrier. And the vicious cycle can go on to, unfortunately, as we all know, very painful and very destructive ends. That's basically being an Egyptian. And you looking at your problem the way they looked at the frogs. Each time, instead of, so to speak, letting it go, unfortunately, when that happens, we make the problem worse. And I ask you to think about for yourself. And I, I, Again, I try to do this myself, even though I guess I don't do it enough, uh, since I'm certainly not perfect at this, but... To the extent that I can think in these terms, I think it really is helpful and I think it will be helpful for anybody. Which is, think about the last time you lost your temper and got angry. Did it help? Was the situation any better? Again, I'm not saying that the person didn't deserve it. Uh, whatever the case was, maybe a person really hurt you. Uh, a co-worker, it could be a stranger, it could be a loved one. They really hurt you. They did something they really shouldn't have. It was wrong. They deserve your anger. But did it actually help? Was the situation in any way improved by you losing your temper? Did you get anything more than you might have otherwise? Is the situation or the relationship any better as a result of your anger? I would posit, in my own experience, and I assume that I'm not unique, 99% of the time, at least, not only did it not get better, if anything, it gets worse. And we all know this in the cool distance of perspective. It's just in the moment when we got all hot and angry, we can't think straight. But when we're not angry, we're just thinking about it rationally and contemplating it, of course we know that anger never really helps. So why do we get angry? The stipler, I think, has this profound insight. Because we lose control. When we lose control, we don't think straight. This idea, which I think is incredibly rational, prosaic, down-to-earth, psychologically compelling, I, I found a number of years ago a number of Kabbalistic mystical sources, which seem to be, I think, the parallels of this stipler. If you take a look at source number seven, and then it's kind of reiterated even more dramatically in source number eight, this is the tradition that they bring from the Rav Chaim Vital and the name of the Arizal. And here in source number seven, you have the Sefer HaCharedim, who also from that generation, more or less, of, the, of Rav Yosef uh, Karo and others from Tzfat, also bringing the same idea that, again, Kabbalistically, mystically, uh, the tradition is that when a person gets angry, their neshama leaves them. 
Now, if your neshama leaves you, you would think you would die. So a more scary a version of this is that your neshama leaves you, and then some other uh, parallel energy source uh, from the dark side uh, somehow enters your body, so to speak, to keep you alive. But your neshama leaves you when you get angry and only returns when you, so to speak, uh, calm down. Now, if you ask me what exactly does this mean on a mystical, Kabbalistic level, I admit I have no clue. Um, but what I think and what made me so excited when I saw these sources is, I just think that, at least the way I understand it, is this is really just a very powerful, a mystical, spiritual version of what the stipler was telling us. This is a Kabbalistic language, a Kabbalistic lens through which to describe exactly the same phenomenon that we just saw when it came to the Egyptians and the frogs from the stipler. And that is that when we get angry, we lose control. The way the Kabbalists say it, when we get angry, our neshama leaves us. We're not ourselves anymore. I think that's the best way of putting it. I think it works very nicely with the English idiom. When you lose your temper, you're not yourself anymore. You've, you're, you've lost control. That's what the sources in, from Kabbalah are saying. Your neshama left you. You're not yourself anymore. You've lost control. You've lost yourself. You've lost it which is an idiom, an expression that we're familiar with in English. It says the stipler, and again, I think it's so cogent, you don't have to be a Kabbalist or a mystic. I think it's cogent on a very rational, psychological level. When you are angry, you're out of control. When you're out of control, you end up doing things which are self-destructive, which are injurious, which make matters worse, and you know it, but you can't help it because you've lost control. And I would suggest that's exactly what underlies source number nine, which is Shlomo HaMelech in Sefer HaKohelas. The wisest of all men says when it comes to getting angry... You are a kasil, you're a fool if you get angry. Now, we wouldn't have expected from the previous sources that we began to share with. Why would you say you are a fool? I would have thought you're a Russia, right? All the earlier sources talked about how evil and immoral it was to get angry. Why is Shlomo Melech saying you're a fool if you get angry? But now we understand. Because only a fool, you'll forgive me, but only a fool does something that he or she knows is self-destructive, is counterproductive, is going to injure him or herself. Why would you do such a thing that you know it's going to make your situation worse, is going to hurt yourself? The answer is it's a foolish thing to do. Of course it's foolish. Ah, what makes you foolish? Because you know it, but you can't control yourself. Because when you get angry, you lose control. To do that is the height of foolishness. And I would suggest this is probably what's underlying the sources that we saw about how great leaders and people of great accomplishment can lose everything if they really can't control their anger. It's not just the moral dimension, although that frankly would be enough, but it's also the fact that it's simply not wise. You can't have a leader who can't control his or her temper. You can't have a leader who does things which are self-destructive. If they could do that to hurt themselves, who knows what they could do to hurt other people? Hashem cannot trust his wisdom, his nevuah, or leadership in the hands of someone who can't control him or herself. They'd even do things that would hurt themselves. It doesn't make any sense. Why? You need to be in self-control. The key to Yiddishkeit, and the key to life, but certainly the key to Torah, is self-control. The Torah is predicated on a person being in control. Almost all of the emotions that are known to humanity have legitimate expression in a Torah lifestyle. But you can easily go over the line to do things that are inappropriate or even usher if you're out of control. The only way to live a truly rich Torah life in a healthy way is if you can stay in control. A person who gets angry, the shorish, what we're seeing from the stipler and the Kabbalists, the shorish is a person who cannot stay in control, does not have the self-discipline to do things that make sense and to not do things that don't make sense. When you lose control, when you lose yourself, that is a particularly dangerous place to be and can really have terrible, terrible consequences. Now I have to ask you to forgive me for a second and to stay with me, please. Um, just recently I had to, I downgraded uh, my Zoom to the free option. I'd been paying for it for a while. And it's telling me that our, uh, our uh, meeting is going to end in one minute. So I'm going to uh, exit now and then I'm going to reload it and hopefully you'll all rejoin me. So it's gonna, I hope it don't take longer than a minute. Uh, but we're going to, uh, at the moment, uh, just end this conversation. But I'm going to quickly restart and it's at the same link, and I hope you'll all join me so we can have as short a delay as possible. I'm sorry about this, but to hopefully get taken care of right away. Okay, you can rejoin. The meeting has now been restarted.
Okay, thank you. The two winners for the first two have joined. Let's wait and we'll give another 30 seconds for other people to join. And then we'll hopefully uh, reconvene for the rest of the year. Okay, let's uh, resume, and hopefully uh, imminently other people who are on the Zoom will join us as well. Sorry about this. I guess we'll have to work this out for the future. Uh, hopefully in the future we'll be mainly in person anyway, but uh, anyway, for future show we'll work this out. So getting back to where we were, I want to now flip the script, and I would like to use the remaining part of the shear to look at the opposite uh, of this, and that is something which we see often in Torah, uh, and I think is kind of a beautifully symmetrical, the way Hashem, so to speak, made the world, of Zeh L'Umad Zeh. That is to say that uh, the parallel to the um, parallel to the, um, the, the the negative sources that we have seen, uh, there are equally positive uh, sources as well that speak with incredible passion and incredible uh, persuasiveness about the power and the good of controlling one's temper. We've seen an overwhelming amount of powerful sources about the negativity of losing. Uh, control and being angry and having temp- anger management problems and losing your temper, but I think it's very dramatic and it'll be inspiring and instructive to see that in fact there are almost point by point parallel and powerful sources that indicate how productive and meaningful and beloved to Hashem and how smart, frankly, it is if you can control your temper. So if you take a look uh, back at the source sheet, um, I'd share the screen again, take a look at source number 10. The Gemara here says on the bottom of the page, in the Gebrar Brachos, Lo Tartech, Lo Tachti. If you don't get hot, you won't sin. I think it's very fascinating that the Gemara evidently was very familiar with the same kind of idiom in uh, Mashal that we still use, uh, which is that we view anger and getting hot uh, as being synonymous. Right? Don't get hot under the collar is an expression we're all familiar with. Evidently, so is the Gemara. As Rashi says, what does that mean, get ang- what does that mean uh, don't get hot? Says Rashi means don't get angry. Uh, and what the Gemara is telling us, lo tirtach, lo tachti, if a person doesn't lose their temper, they won't sin. It's very, very fascinating. It must be. It's clearly that the Gemara is not saying this as a completely unequivocal statement. There are many times we sin that have nothing to do with anger. There are, we, we sin for all sorts of reasons of passion or, other, or laziness or other things. But nevertheless, says the Gemara, I think very astutely, that when a person loses his or her temper, uh, it's not just the temper that's the problem, it's that that often leads to many other sins. Son ben Arm Lechavero, if you speak inappropriately about people, it can be onos devarim, if you're mean, if you embarrass people, which is a terrible Avera, if you use uh, inappropriate language, nivel pez is a bad Avera, um, you could speak Lashon Hara about a person because you're angry, another Avera. If you get angry, if you lose your temper, if you get angry at a person or a situation, you're likely to have, commit other sins. Um, and therefore, says the Gemara, if you want to control your sin quotient, so to speak, you should control your temper. You know, very, very good advice. So just like we saw a very negative spiritual description of somebody who loses his or her temper, here we have a very positive emphasis on the spiritual benefits of someone who can control his or her temper. Moreover, source number 11, the next source on the sheet, says the Gemara Psachim, there are three people that Hashem loves. What's the first on the list? A person who can control his or her temper, a person who doesn't get angry, Hashem loves you. Again, that's a very, very beautiful thing. And I would say that, you know, I think most people would sign up for that. We all want to be loved, and we certainly all want to be loved by Hashem. Wow, what a beautiful thing. So how do you do that? Well, one of the ways is control your temper. That's a very, very powerful Gemara, and I would say that very much parallels, but it's the, of course, the mirror image of, the inverse of, in a much more positive way, those sources that talked about how terrible it was to get angry. It's like you did a vote of Zara. Well, we know Hashem hates people who worship idols. So if you can control your anger, you're the opposite. You're a person not who Hashem hates, God forbid, but a person who Hashem loves. Moreover, if you take a look at source number 12, the Medrash here says something which I think is also particularly powerful. We saw previously incredible Gemaras and Medrashim about how people lost everything and most precious to them because of their anger. A Chacham, a Navi, a Melech, Eov, stature, prestige, kavod, wisdom, prophecy. You could lose everything, according to the Gemara and according to Chazal, if you can't control your anger. Here we have a Medrash that says just the opposite. 
How was Yehoshua chosen to be the successor to Moshe? What characteristics did Yehoshua have that made him more worthy than even Moshe's own children, than other students of Moshe? So in different sources in Chazal, you can get different impressions. And maybe Yehoshua had many characteristics. But particularly here in this source at number 12, the Sifrei says, you know why Hashem told Moshe to choose Yehoshua? Lefi, because Moshe understood that uh, important part of being a leader, said Moshe, was Yifkod Hashem Elokei Aruchos. When Moshe asks Hashem to designate a successor, he refers to God as Elokei Aruchos, the God of the winds or of the spirits. It's a very bizarre term in the Chumash. And yet, says the Medrash, you know what it's referring to? Ruchos in plural? To be a leader means a person, Ish Asher Ruach Bo. Someone who has a certain spirit. Here that's clearly a metaphor for a personality trait. And in plural, because you don't have a rigid personality, a rigid spirit, in which you can only get along with certain types of people. But rather, says the Medrash, You know how to get along with people. Certain people are type A, certain people are type B, certain people are more sensitive, certain people are more brash, some people are harder, some people are easier. To be a leader, you have to know how to get, get along with everybody. And if you don't have that personality, if you're not a ish asher bo, then you will be able, you will not be able to uh, be an effective leader because you will lose your temper and you will not be able to legitimately respect and therefore legitimately lead and get along with all sorts of uh, different uh, people. This is uh, really, really a very powerful message. And of course, it is an incredibly poignant parallel to the Gemara we saw in Psachim and the Medrash we saw about all the people who lost their positions of power and prestige because of their anger. Here we have an example of somebody or a person who could theoretically gain tremendous kavod as Yahushua did because they controlled uh, their anger. There's another source, I didn't put it on the sheet, but there's another source that seems to indicate something similar about Noah, that why was Noah saved? Not only did he get put in the ark, but he was able to be saved throughout the difficult period while the flood waters were raging. And the Medrash seems to say there because, or certain Kabbalistic sources seem to say, because Noah was easygoing, he didn't get angry at people, people were bothering him for all those years, he didn't get angry at them. In the ark, when the, when the lion got angry at him, he didn't lose his temper there. It was a very you know, anxious time, especially in, you, know, you can imagine during a crisis, people are very short-tempered typically. It was not a simple thing to be in that teva for those 40 days and 40 nights and then longer when the waters were receding. And yet Noah was able to um, control his temper and be calm and get along with everybody, didn't lose his temper, didn't lose his anger. According to some sources, that's why he deserved to be saved. That would be another example, again, of the tremendous reward and benefit that comes from um, not losing your temper. The Ramban, in source number 13, the very famous letter of the Ramban, Igeres HaRamban, literally in the opening sentences, the first thing he tells his son, and really with his ethical legacy uh, to all of us is, a person should always speak quietly. Ubazeh tinatzel menakas because if you can speak quietly, that will preemptively prevent you from getting angry. Because getting angry is this horrible you know, gateway of error, if you will. It leads to many other uh, sins. And he says, you know, he connects it as he continues. It's, it's, it's a uh, cascading domino effect in a good way. If you speak softly, you won't get angry. If you don't get angry, you'll also be more humble. And to be humble is the best mida. And I think what Ramban is saying, or at least it could be understood, it's not only this way, but it certainly could be understood very much and appreciated in light of what we saw previously from the stipler. If anger is all about losing control and doing things which we know are self-destructive and counterproductive, but we can't help it because the shorish of anger is to be out of control, in essence what Ramban is saying, if you train yourself to regularly and consistently talk nicely, i.e. to stay in control, to be passionate, but still be in control. Not to be ruled by one's passions. Not to be out of control. But tamid, to always be, to train ourselves to remain in control and to remain calm. Memela, that will save us from anger. What is talking quietly today have to do with not being angry tomorrow? I think the answer implicit in the Ramban is what the stipler and the Kabbalist and the mystics have taught us. Because anger is about losing control. But if you habituate and train yourself to remain in control and always keep an even keel and talk nicely, memela you'll be saved from being angry, not only today, but tomorrow and the next day, because anger is about losing control. And what the Ramban is really saying is, 
Train yourself to stay in control, to stay always at an even keel. Mamele, you'll be saved from this cascading list of problems that could otherwise result. And therefore, in light of these and other sources, I think we can now appreciate beautifully source number 14, which is yet again Shlomo HaMelech. We saw that Shlomo HaMelech in Koheles surprisingly said that to be angry is to be a kasil, to be a fool. We said, what do you mean a fool? I thought to be angry is Ovid of Zorah, it's a Russia, it's evil. And the answer is no, Shlomo Melch was telling us it's foolish, because as we saw from the stipler, only a fool would do things that are counterproductive and self-destructive. Why would you do something that's going to hurt yourself? It's going to do the opposite of advancing your own interests. The answer is it's a foolish thing to do. People are foolish if they get angry. Similarly, now a perfect parallel to this is... Shlomo Melch, yet again, not in Kohelis, but in Mishlei. And he describes a person who is herich apo, a person who is provoked, but doesn't lose control, keeps their anger in check, is a sechel, is a wise person. Again, out of context, this might be a surprising statement by Shlomo, but now we appreciate it so beautifully. What a beautiful parallelism. If you lose your temper, you're a kasil. But if you control your temple, you temper, excuse me, you can manage your anger, you are a seichel, you are a wise person. Because ultimately to lose your temper is the most silly and ridiculous thing to do, as opposed to if you will control your temper, it'll be so beneficial spiritually, interpersonally, in every way, in your home, in your job, etc. If you can stay even keeled, even when provoked, it is the wisest investment you can make in yourself and in your own success. And therefore it makes sense that Shlomo Melech would call a person who gets angry a lot a fool, someone who can control his or her anger, a sechel. I want to conclude by mentioning one more tradition, one source, and I hope with time permitting, uh, one final a story, I guess, to really uh, illustrate this last idea. Um, and this is the last few sources. The Gemara Nadarim, source number 15, has a shocking statement. But again, maybe at this point nothing should be shocking because we've seen so many astounding statements by Chazal. But the Gemara says here, Kolakoes, Kol mine gehenim sholtenbo. Person who gets angry, and again, you can choose whether you think this is referring to even once, or perhaps a person who has a regular anger management problem. Someone who gets angry says the Gemara, Kol mine gehenim sholtenbo. All forms of gehenim, of hell, will rule over him or her. Right? That's the language of the Gemara. What's the, I mean, there are many things that one could question about this Gemara, but at least one is the plural term, mine gehenim. Right? We don't like to think about it too much. It's not the way most of us walk around uh, the street every day with the theme of Gehenim and hell and punishment on the front of our brain, uh, in the front of our minds. It's not a pleasant way to go through life, and therefore I'm not surprised that most of us wouldn't do that. But we do know that there's a parsha in the Torah called Schar Onish, Reward and Punishment, and Vahayim Shamoa. And uh, we don't exactly understand what it means, but we certainly believe that if you live a virtuous life, you'll be rewarded in the next world. And if you live an immoral, unethical, anti-Torah life, Nebuch, uh, you'll have to get punished, what we call Gehenim. Okay, so I believe there's this thing called Gehenim, this place called Hell or Gehenim. But I never heard that there's more than one. You know, Dante had his, what was it, Dante's seven levels? But, uh, you know, we're Jews. We don't necessarily believe in that. Don't we believe in one? What does that mean, Mine Gehenim? And why should it be so bad? So the Ran in source number 16, one of the Rishonim, he really doesn't address the plural and the language issue. He just says, well, the reason you're going to go to Gehenim is because you're going to, as a result, you're going to get angry and then you're, in essence, going to worship a Zorah. You're going to be kofar ikar, Right? As the Gemara had said, and we saw previously, if you have an anger problem, it's like you worship a Zorah. That kind of solves half the problem. It doesn't really solve the main problem, which is the language issue. What's the plural? Why? Okay, there's only one Gehenim, so that's what the Gemara means. Just say, kolakoes, you know, Gehenim sholten alav. Sholet alav, I should say, in the singular. What's the plural? So, I many years ago had a suggestion, something I wanted to say on my own, and I, I shared it in different contexts, uh, tentatively. But I can now share it with much more confidence, uh, because I subsequently found that the idea that I thought of, in fact, is said before me, and of course much better than I ever could, by the famed mashkiach of the mir, Rabbi Yeruchim Levavitz, in his Sefer, Das Chachma Musr, source number 17. And he points out, He asks our question, not just the Ron's question, he asks our question, which is, what would be so bad if the Gemara just said one Gehenim would be Sholat in him? What's the Gemara trying to get at? It says, Kolmine Gehenim, in plural. What's going on here? So he says here a second line, Kimedumani kizen namar lo alachrei moso shaladam kiim b'chayim chayoso. What a powerful statement! He says enechanami. What the Gemara is saying is, yes, it's true. If you have an anger management problem, it could very well be that you will 
regularly speak abusively and negatively to your friends and family. You may speak lots of Lashon Hara because you're always angry. You may say inappropriate words because you're always angry. You may even, God forbid, resort to physical violence or damage because you're angry. And as a result of all those things, on some level, you're considered a kofar. And for sure, after 120, if you had an anger management problem, you're going to have to pay the piper. Nebuch, you'll go to Gehenim. However, the Gemara is saying, kol mine Gehenim, in the sense that you're not going to have to wait till after 120 to go to hell because your life, you'll forgive me, is going to be a living hell, says Yeruchim. If a person is angry, they're also miserable. This life will be miserable. Not just that after 120, you'll have an eternity of misery in Gehenim. That's true, but that's a singular. You don't have to wait till you die to go to Gehenim. Your life will be a Gehenim. Your children's lives will be Gehenim. Your spouse's life. If you know anybody in Nebuch, I hope no one in this year does, but it's certainly possible. And if you, if you know people, uh, Nebuch, who've gone through the situation in which they had uh, a lot of anger, uh, not, not just, you know, palm bit every now and then, uh, but, you know, really regularly loses their control. To be married to such a person is Gehenim. To have that person as your father or your mother is Gehenim. To have that person as your boss would be a Gehenim, etc., etc. If you have an anger management problem, you do not need to wait to the next world to experience and to inflict Gehenim on other people or yourself. You already have Gehenim for you and for your loved ones in this world, uh, said Rav Yerucham. I think that is such an incredibly powerful idea. And it really goes to the heart of everything we've been talking about. That, you know, from certain perspectives, maybe we could think of other Midos or other Averos as being quote-unquote worse. You know, again, you know, I daven, I, I keep kosher, I learn Torah, I do all sorts of the things that are good. You know, is it really so bad uh, that I, uh, you know, get angry maybe more than I should? And the answer, what we're seeing here is... Yes, bad for you, bad for your loved ones, bad in this world, bad in the next, bad on the makom, bad on the chavero. Yes, very, very, very difficult. It is simply uh, one of the most counterproductive and self-destructive things a person can do. And as a result, if a person nebuch knows about themselves or someone that they love who really has this problem, there's no greater investment you can make in yourself or someone you care about than to help them improve and get better and really conquer this because it is it will lead to bad things in the next world, and it will have much, much bad already uh, in this world. That's how terrible uh, anger is, and that's why the Rambam, among others, was so adamant that we can't even have a little bit of it. We have to do our best to run to the other extreme, because that's how damaging and destructive ka'as can be. If I could conclude with the following story, especially since it's Rosh Chodesh Adar today, uh, I'll, I'll mention even a little bit of a Purim idea, um, and that is we have to realize the devastating effects of anger. We lose ourselves, and we're forfeiting, God forbid, great blessings. We're making other people miserable. So I'm reminded of a very beautiful story about Rav Chaim Belozhner, who uh, was standing with his Gabai on Purim, giving out Matanas Levyonim as people from all around town are waiting in line in the shul to get Kesef, to get Sadaka Matanas Levyonim from the rabbi. And he notices that a person who was in line, he gives him the first time, and then a few minutes later, he notices he maybe uh, changed his hat a little bit, he changed his jacket a little bit, but Rav Chaim Belozhner is sharp, he notices it's the same guy, he's on a line the second time looking for another handout. And you're really only supposed to ask once for the money. But nevertheless, Rechaim Velazhner says to himself, you know, he must be really desperate if he's trying to trick me, coming back a second time. No, I'll give him. The line goes and goes. He's giving more and more tzedakah. And then guess what? With a new jacket, with a new hat, he sees the same guy a third time. And now Rechaim Velazhner is getting angry. What a chutzpah. There's only a finite amount of communal funds, a finite amount of tzedakah. And now this person is going to stick his hand into the cookie jar, so to speak, a third time. He was about to get upset and yell at the person, but in that moment, he held himself back and he whispered to the guy in Yiddish, Now that we all know this is the third time you're here, wink, wink. In other words, he let the guy know he wasn't fooling him. You're here already a third time. Tell me at least a good Torah, at least something to make it you know, legitimate and deserving of me giving you yet a third time. So the guy is embarrassed that he got caught, but he collects himself. And he says, I'll tell you the following. The Medrash tells us that Mordechai met Eliyahu Hanavi in the lowest point of the story when the uh, decree of destruction and Holocaust for the Jews was already existent and they didn't know what they were going to do. And Mordechai is desperate. He sees Eliyahu Hanavi and he asks him, this decree by Haman and Achashverosh was written in blood, in dam, or was it written in dio, in ink? 
Now, obviously, this is metaphorical. It seems to be that if you have a decree up in Shemaim that's written in blood, that's permanent. There's nothing you can do about that. But if it's only written in ink, so then maybe they had a race of blink in those days. Or up in Shemaim, there's always a race of blink, I guess. Maybe, therefore, he's asking Elio, is there a chance? Do we have a chance? Can we get this undone, or is it a fait accompli? Elio Hanavi, according to the Medrash, tells Mordechai it's written in ink. And therefore, that's when Mordechai says to himself, okay, we have a chance, let me go to Esther, let me figure out what we can do. That's the Medrash. Says this poor man to Reb Chaim or the Galador, what's the source? How did Eliyahu Hanavi know? How did the Medrash know that there was hope? How did the Medrash know that this Gzeir had only been written in ink and not in blood? So the poor man asks Reb Chaim he doesn't know. The poor man says, I'll tell you. Because when Haman told Achashverosh in the third parak of Megillus Esther, he's going to destroy the Jewish people, he says, Im ahamelech tov, yikasev le'obdam. If, if it's you know, appealing to the king, can we write a decree that we should kill, we should destroy the Jewish people? Le'obdam. How do you spell le'obdam to destroy the Jewish people? Lamed Aleph, Bez dalid mem. Le'obdam. Says this poor person, Rechaim Velozhener, don't read it. Le'obdam. But read it, just break, break the words up into two. The letters up into two words. Lo, bedam. Not le'abdam, but lo, bedam. It's not in blood, it's in ink. Which means it can be undone by the Jewish people if they do tshuva. Of Chaim Velozhener was astounded. What a brilliant insight. What a creative, beautiful drush. Unbelievable. But how could it be? That I'm the God of the door. I knew Kaltar Akula. I never even thought about that. I didn't have this idea. And this nobody, this ganif, this schnorr, this ganif schnorr, he somehow knew this brilliant idea, and I didn't. So sometime later, Reb Chaim went to his rebbe, the Vilna Gon, and he told him the story about the guy who came once and twice and three times trying to get too much money, and Reb Chaim caught him and said, give me a Devar Torah, and he gave him this Devar Torah, and Reb Chaim is kind of astounded and even almost upset. How could it be that this nobody, this immoral, unethical ganif schnorr, he knew a Devar Torah that I didn't know? Says the Vilnagon to him, Oh, you have to realize, that guy who told you about the story in the Devar Torah, that wasn't some random poor person begging for money. That was none other than Eliyahu Navi. You merited a Giloy Eliyahu because you didn't get angry. You didn't scream. He deserved it. You could have said, Ganev, Oisvarf, get out of here. But you didn't. You stayed control. You stayed calm. And as a result, Hashem rewarded you with a Gila Eliyahu and this beautiful, beautiful new idea. And I think the lesson for us is so, so powerful. We all get provoked. Our kids know what buttons to push. Our spouses know where we're the most vulnerable. But we have to be, we have to have the, most, the necessary discipline to withstand that temptation, not to get angry, not to lose our cool, not to lose control. Because if we can overcome all those provocations, and there are times when people really hurt us and really do provoke us, but if we can control ourselves, so we can stay in control, even then, I can't guarantee you'll have a transcendent uh, religious experience or a Gili Eliyahu. But I can guarantee you something at least as good. A better marriage, a better relationship with your kids, a happier life. Not, God forbid, Kalmine Gehenim, but kolmine shamayim sholtimbo. Yes, you'll live a better life and you'll ultimately reward it after 120 with a greater olam haba because you didn't lose your temper. But you won't have to wait till 120 for your olam haba and for your shamayim. You'll have heaven on earth because you'll be a happier person. Your marriage will be better. Your relationships will be better. You'll be happier. Everyone around you will be happier. So maybe Gilel Yo, I don't know. That's not for me to say. But if we can work on ourselves, each of us on our own level, to have more control, more self-control, not lose our temper, even when we're provoked, then I think not only will we have great rewards waiting for us after 120, but we will see the great rewards and blessings in our own life right away. So therefore, I cannot end with a more encouraging and more enthusiastic um, message and emphasis that we should all, none of us are perfect, certainly not me, we should all do our best to think about what are the things that push our buttons, when are we most vulnerable, when do we often get provoked more often than others, and try to game plan it, so to speak. Try to really think about how we can do a better job of working on ourselves, controlling this anger, because the downsides, if we can't, are enormous in this world and the next. 
And the upsides, thankfully, if we can, are really uh, uh, enormous as well. And I think we know it. Sometimes it's hard when we don't see the carrot. But here I don't think it's, we don't, we don't have to take anything I'm saying on blind faith. You know, I think everything I'm saying is completely unremarkable uh, and I hope interesting and compelling, but unremarkable and unsurprising. I think we all know deep in our hearts and hopefully not even so deep, it should be pretty obvious, that everything we're talking about is really obviously true and compelling and beneficial. And if we could just you know, work on ourselves when we're not provoked and when we're calm to develop those habits, we're much more likely to have incredibly happy, successful lives, marriages and relationships with everyone around us. And Emir Hashem many years from now, uh, also merit incredible reward uh, in the next world. But the key is that even this world will have a much, much better life. We have much better meetups. So that's my message for you. And have a wonderful, wonderful day.